Proton Drive is finally available for Windows. The Thunderbird redesign has finally dropped. Microsoft is dodging a zero-day admission while Apple is pulling and re-releasing their patches. There is a lot going on this week. Welcome to Surveillance Report 142, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. Henry is out this weekend, but should be back soon. Our promo segment, for those who are just joining us, we have a Patreon. If you join for $5 a month or more, you get access to the Q&A, which will come out later this week, and you get to ask us questions. We got a ton of questions this week. I'm excited answer those. And if you join at $10 a month or more, then you actually get access to a special version of the podcast that is longer. It features more of our personal thoughts, our analysis, some more banter, stuff like that. And you don't have to listen to this promo segment. If all you want is like the straight up facts of the story, then you know, you're listening to the right version. But if you want a little more analysis and maybe a few more jokes and things like that, then definitely worth checking out in my opinion. If you don't care about any of the rewards or anything, but you want to support us in a recurring way and you don't like Patreon, we have a LibrePay that is growing. And of course, we also support Monero, which is an anonymous cryptocurrency. It is built with a lot of privacy protecting features by default. So, you know, no offense to Bitcoin, but you don't have to jump through all these different kind of hoops and things. You just start using it and the privacy is all caked in there. It's really awesome. We're big fans. So those are currently the three ways to support us. For those of you who are supporting, well, you're not hearing this, but thank you very much. And if you're not in a financial position to support, we still appreciate you being here with us and watching us anyway. So thanks for listening. All right, we're going to start off with the highlight story. And I'm just going to go ahead and give you guys a little peek behind the scenes. We try to pick the highlight story based on what is like the big story that everybody should know about. That's definitely a big factor. But there's also a little bit of um, what's going to get clicks. I'd, I'd say it's about... 80, 20, 70, 30, like it's mostly about what's the big story, but it's also about like, hey, what's going to get people to click on it? We try not to be too clickbaity, but admittedly, you know, we're, we're trying to get people in. Hopefully they'll stick around for the whole thing and not just the highlight story. And honestly, there's a lot of good stories this week. I felt like this Proton story was the one that would really appeal the most to our target audience that would really pique people's interest and be like, oh, I want to know more about that. And the reason I gave that caveat is because this is not exactly a long story. <laughs> And I feel really bad when we do that. We put, you know, this really short story up top and it's like, this is the highlight story. It takes two seconds, then we move on. It's gonna be one of those weeks and I'm sorry. The headline says, introducing the Proton Drive Windows app, seamlessly sync and access your files from your desktop. That's it. The title really says it all. Proton Drive finally has a Windows app. Oh, and the Mac app is in beta. That That is worth noting too. I believe it's a private beta that you have to be invited to or like apply for, I think. But they do say it's it's in the works and will be released soon. I know Henry tried to download it, but apparently it doesn't work on ARM architecture yet. He posted about that on Mastodon. So if you're on like a Mac or um, any kind of ARM-based device, you're not really gonna have a lot of luck with this thing. I guess he was probably running like a virtual machine or something. If you're just using regular x86 or x64 Windows or x86-64, I don't know. You, you guys know what I'm trying to say. If you're using regular Windows, It's here. I don't know how it would work on Linux with Wine. Uh, If anybody knows, feel free to leave it in the comments, but it works kind of like Dropbox. You know, you download it, you install it, and then you pick a folder or folders to synchronize, or you can make a new folder, and then it just starts syncing. And just because I know people are going to leave it in the comments, because there's some people who just can't let a good thing happen without bringing some kind of negativity to it. Look, guys, Windows sucks. Okay, we know. We know it is super privacy invasive, and it's not as secure as some of the other options out there most of the other options out there, all of those things, we're well aware. But the fact is there's a lot of people out there that have to use Windows for a lot of perfectly valid reasons. For example, I'm an audio guy, and for many, many years, I made my living 
doing audio and I needed access. I still need access to things like Pro Tools and a lot of the plugins that don't work on Linux. And sure, I can move over to a MacBook, but a Windows machine that does audio well costs half as much as a MacBook that handles audio just as well. Sometimes it costs even less than that. So not everyone can afford a Mac. Like I, I made a living as an audio guy, but I wasn't like rolling in dough. I, I didn't really have the money to drop on a MacBook. I Windows worked great for me. And then, you know, there's some people that like, it's a work device that they're allowed to use for personal stuff, but they're not allowed to reinstall like Linux on it. And maybe that's the only device they have and they have to use that device for some stuff. Like there's a lot of perfectly valid reasons, whether it's temporary or long-term that people have to use Windows. And I think that every little step we make to make Windows suck a little bit less for the people who value their privacy is a win. So yeah, that's the story. Proton Drive is out. I think it's a great step forward in the privacy movement. I'm excited to see it. I'm gonna test it out a little bit more and hope to have some thoughts. If you're still looking for a drive solution, I think this is definitely worth checking out now. If, obviously, if you're a Proton user on Windows, if you're happy where you are, then hey man, cool, more power to you. But this now makes Drive a little bit more usable for mainstream users, which is really what Proton's going after. I think we all know they're trying to be a Google competitor. And in that sense, this is a step in the right direction. With that, let's roll into data breaches. We're gonna start off with UK battling a hacking wave as a ransomware gang claims the biggest ever NHS breach. NHS for non-UK people, I think is the National Health Service. It says Bart's Health NHS Trust, which runs five London-based hospitals and serves more than 2.5 million patients, was recently added to the dark web leak site of the Alpha ransomware gang. The gang, also known as Black Cat, says it has stolen 70 terabytes of sensitive data in what it claims is the biggest breach of healthcare data in the United Kingdom. Samples of the allegedly stolen data seen by TechCrunch include employee identification documents, including passports and driver's licenses, and internal emails labeled confidential. The incident is the second breach of NHS data in recent weeks. As first reported by The Independent, a June ransomware attack on the UK's University of Manchester saw attackers access an NHS data set that holds information on 1.1 million patients across 200 hospitals. The compromised data gathered by the university for research purposes includes NHS numbers and the first three letters of patients' postcodes, according to reports. Meanwhile, over in America, HCA has confirmed a breach after an attacker stole data of 11 million patients. HCA Healthcare is one of America's largest healthcare facility owners and operators with 182 hospitals and 2,200 care centers across 21 states and the UK. So UK slightly affected too. So as I said, this affected an estimated 11 million patients and included full names, city, state, and zip code, email address, phone number, date of birth, gender, service date, and location, and date of next appointment. HCA Healthcare does not believe that the stolen data contains detailed clinical information such as conditions, diagnosis, and treatment, payment information such as credit card and bank account numbers, or other sensitive information like passwords, social security numbers, and driver's licenses. Deutsche Bank confirms provider breach exposed customer data. I didn't put it here in the notes, but just in case anyone hasn't heard of them, they're a huge, huge multinational bank. I think they're mostly active in Europe. They're just kind of one of those conglomerates that's everywhere. This actually was part of the Move It attack, seemingly, because this statement from Deutsche Bank, in addition to our service provider, we understand that more than 100 companies in more than 40 countries are potentially affected. I think that was them kind of trying to like not say that this is a Move It breach and also kind of try to like, hey, it's not just us. This is happening to everybody. This was a, a service provider of theirs that was breached. They said the number of impacted clients has not been determined, but Deutsche Bank said they have all been informed accordingly on the direct impact and what precautions they should take regarding their exposed data. So as you can gather from that last quote, this article didn't really have a lot of information like who the service provider was, how many customers, what was breached, all that kind of stuff. Colorado State University says data breach impacts student and staff. Colorado State University, or CSU, has confirmed that the CLOP ransomware operation 
Administration stole sensitive personal information on current and former students and employees during the recent Move It Transfer data theft attacks. Colorado State University is a public research university with nearly 28,000 students and 6,000 academic and administrative staff members operating on an endowment of $558 million. Some data about prospective current and former CSU students and current and former employees maintained by the affected vendors contains personally identifiable information, which may include first name, middle initial, last name, date of birth, student or employee identification numbers, social security numbers, and demographic information, such as gender, gender, ethnicity, and level and area of education. The university says the stolen data is from as far back as 2021, possibly earlier, meaning that graduates may have been impacted. Uh, the leak of this data is not the result of a direct data breach of any systems or uh, operated or maintained by CSU, but rather a compromise of the university's service vendors, TIAA, National Student Clearinghouse, Corbridge Financial, Gentworth Financial, Sun Life, and The Hartford. All of these providers utilized the MoveIt file transfer platform. Razor is investigating data breach claims and reset user sessions. So Razor is a popular American and Singaporean tech firm focusing on gaming hardware, selling high quality peripherals, powerful laptops, and apparel. The company also sells services that give registered account holders access to extensive game collections, special in-game item offers, exclusive rewards, and more through its Razor Gold payment system. Information about a potential breach at the company emerged on Saturday when someone posted on a cybercrime forum that they had stolen the source code, database, encryption keys, and backend access logins for Razor.com, the company's main website. The screen Shots posted as proof of the breach show file lists and trees, email addresses, source code allegedly for anti-cheat and reward systems, API details, Razor Gold balances, and more. This was shared via tweet. So replying to the tweet, Razor said that it was looking into the potential incident by starting an investigation. Bleeping Computer has been able to confirm that the leaked accounts are valid and belong to legitimate users on the website. Also, Bleeping Computer has found that Razor has reset all member accounts, invalidating their active sessions and requesting them to reset their passwords. This article also goes on to note that back in 2020, they had a data breach infecting full names, email addresses, phone numbers, customer IDs, order details, and billing and shipping addresses of 100,000 customers. Okay, and then our final data breach comes from Bangladesh. This is an update to last week. It says Bangladesh government takes down exposed citizens' data. So on Friday, TechCurrent reported that a website belonging to the government of Bangladesh was leaking the personal information of the country's citizens, including full names, phone numbers, email addresses, and national ID numbers. And like I said, we covered that on last week's surveillance report, which as some of you noted, was a little late coming out. By the time it came out, this was actually already updated. So sorry, guys, we, we try to get these out as quick as we can, but you know, some weekends are just crazy. At the time, we didn't disclose which website in particular was leaking because all the data was still accessible. We can now report that it was with the Office of the Registrar General Birth and Death Registration website. I don't know who that is, but that sounds like it probably has some sensitive data. Bangladeshi's e-government computer incident response team, or CERT, said the data has now been taken down. This article just kind of gives a little more background. It says this, um, this leak was originally discovered and disclosed back in late June. And then when the original researcher who found it didn't get a response, they went to TechCrunch, who on the Friday they reported the story, alerted CERT, the government press office, the embassy in Washington, D.C., and the consulate in New York City. None responded. But in a press release on Saturday, CERT claimed that they had, quote, promptly addressed the breach and demonstrated its professionalism in the investigation. Because apparently just not responding to people is very professional. All right, with that, we'll move into companies. And we... <laughs> We actually have an interesting one from Apple. Apple was uh, interesting this week. So this is three stories that we're gonna cover at once. The first one says, Apple releases emergency update to fix zero day exploited in attacks. Day one of this saga says, Apple releases emergency update to fix zero day exploited in attacks. 
Quoting the article, the flaw has been found in the WebKit browser engine developed by Apple, and it allows attackers to gain arbitrary code execution on targeted devices by tricking the targets into opening web pages containing maliciously crafted content. The company addressed the security weakness with improved checks to mitigate exploitation attempts. So that was day one. Apple's like, hey, there's a zero day, update your phones. The, you know, this happens, it's fairly common with Apple. We see it a few times a year. Quote unquote, no big deal, right? Just run of the mill story. And then the next day, part two of the saga, Apple confirms WebKit security updates break browsing on some sites. Quoting the article again, Apple confirmed today that emergency security updates released on Monday to address a zero day bug exploited in attacks also break browsing on some websites. New ones will be released soon to address this known issue, the company says. While Apple did not explain why the affected websites were prevented from rendering correctly, this reportedly happened after some service, services user, user agents detections, such as Zoom, Facebook, and Instagram got broken and caused the websites to start showing errors in Safari on patch devices. For instance, after applying the rapid security response updates on an iOS device, the new user agent containing an A string is most, I'm not gonna read all that, but there it is, uh, which prevents websites from detecting it as a valid version of Safari, thus displaying browser not supported error messages. And then the conclusion to the epic trilogy on day three, we had Apple re-releases zero day patch after fixing browsing issue. Apple fixed and re-released emergency security updates addressing a WebKit zero day vulnerability exploited in attacks. The initial patches had to be withdrawn on Monday due to browsing issues on certain websites. On Apple news, we have macOS Sonoma, which is I believe the upcoming version of macOS will be released later this year. It says it's bringing Apple password manager to third party browsers. Quoting the article, Apple has made an iCloud Passwords Chrome extension available for macOS Sonoma users, and it can be downloaded and installed to access Apple Passwords on the Chrome browser or any Chromium-based browser. Okay, now let's go talk about Google. We're gonna have an update to a story. It says Google hit with a lawsuit alleging it stole data from millions of users to train its AI tools. We did cover last year how Google, or excuse me, last episode, how Google had, they updated their terms of service to basically say that they will now scrape everything on the internet to train their AI. So this is a proposed class action lawsuit against Google, its parent company Alphabet, and Google's AI subsidiary DeepMind, which was filed in a federal court in California on Tuesday and was brought by Clarkson Law Firm. The firm previously filed a similar suit against ChatGPT maker OpenAI last month, which I think we also touched on in a surveillance report. The complaint alleges that Google has been secretly stealing, this is a quote from the, the filing, has been secretly stealing everything ever created and shared on the internet by hundreds of millions of Americans, unquote, and using this data to trade its AI products, such as its chatbot Bard. The complaint also claims Google has taken, quote, virtually the entirety of our digital footprint, including creative and copywritten works, unquote, to build its AI products. The complaint points to a recent update to Google's privacy policy that explicitly states the company may use publicly accessible information to train its AI models and tools such as BART. Unquote. We do have some arguably good news from Google, though. The headline says Google Play will enforce business checks to curb malware submissions. Quoting the article, the new measure aims to enhance the platform's security and trustworthiness and is part of the effort to curb malware submissions from new accounts. Typically, malicious apps on Google Play are submitted for review without dangerous code or payloads, which are then fetched later via an update in the post-installation phase. The offending apps are reported and removed from the Play Store and their developers are banned. However, it is relatively easy for them to create a new account and submit the same dangerous app under a new name and theme. On to deal with this loophole, starting on August 31st, 2023, Google will require all developers creating new Play Console accounts to provide a valid DUNS number. DUNS, which is Data Universal Numbering System, are unique nine-digit identifiers assigned by commercial data and business analytics firm Dunn & Bradstreet 
to unique businesses. Organizations requesting a DUNS number from Dun & Bradstreet have to submit several documents that help verify the provided information, and the process can take up to 30 days to complete. DUNS is a globally recognized proprietary standard used by the United States government, the European Commission, the United Nations, and Apple, and it's considered trustworthy. In addition to the above, Google will change the contact details section of the app entries on the Play Store, renaming it to App Support, and adding more information about the developer. Previously, this section hosted the developer's name, email, and location, but now it will also include the company name, complete office address, website URL, and phone number. Google says it will regularly verify information provided by app developers for inclusion in that section. Our next story is not really a story in my opinion. It says TikTok executive admits Australians user data accessed by employees in China. Quoting the article, Australian user data is accessible to TikTok employees based in China on a quote, very strict basis, according to the company's head of data security, Will Ferrell, unquote. So this next story is especially interesting. It says Microsoft takes pains to obscure role in zero day that caused email breach. So on Friday, Microsoft attempted to explain the cause of a breach that gave attackers working for the Chinese government access to the email accounts of 25 organizations, reportedly including the U.S. Department of State and Commerce and other sensitive organizations. But I guess just to to kind of give you some background, it's exactly what it says. Apparently, we found out this week that the Chinese government has uh, breached several government level organizations like the Department of State, the Department of Commerce, and had access to their emails. In a post on Friday, the company indicated that the compromise resulted from three exploited vulnerabilities in either its Exchange Online Email Service or Azure Active Directory, an identity service that manages single sign-on and multi-factor authentication for large organizations. Microsoft's third intelligence team said that Storm 0558, a China-based hacking outfit that conducts espionage on behalf of China's government, exploited them starting on May 15th, and they did eventually um, kick them out, I think they said in June. The article goes on, in standard parlance among security professionals, this means that Storm 0558 exploited zero days in the Microsoft cloud services. They're talking about the, um, they're, they're analyzing the language that they used in the blog post. A zero day is a vulnerability that is known or exploited by outsiders before the vendor has a patch for it. An exploit means using a code or other means to trigger a vulnerability in a way that causes harm to the vendor or others. While both conditions are clearly met in the Storm 0558 intrusion, Friday's post and two others Microsoft published on Tuesday bend over backwards to avoid the words vulnerability or zero day. Instead, the company uses considerably more amorphous terms such as issue, error, and flaw when attempting to explain how nation state hackers tracked the email accounts of some of the company's biggest customers. A plain English summary of the event would seem to be this. Microsoft has patched three vulnerabilities in its cloud server that were discovered after Storm 0558 exploited them to gain access to customer accounts. It would also be helpful if Microsoft provided a tracking designation under the CVE system the way that other cloud companies do. So why doesn't Microsoft do the same? And then uh, here's the kicker for all you Microsoft haters out there. You're going to love this one. Besides being opaque about the root cause of the breach and its own role in it, Microsoft is under fire for withholding details that some of the victims could have used to detect the intrusion, something critics have called pay-to-play security. So according to CISA, who apparently was one of the agencies breached by this, this espionage group, like our own cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency was victim. They discovered the intrusion through audit logs that track logins and other important events affecting customers' Microsoft Cloud events. Microsoft, however, requires customers to pay an additional fee to access these records. The cost for an E5 enterprise license allowing such access is $57 per month per user compared to an E3 license cost of $36 per month per user. So yeah, for those of you who like hate Microsoft and you, you're convinced they're like the worst tech company in privacy right now, this is your moment. This is incredibly crappy behavior from top to bottom. You have every right to like, go ahead and leave a comment telling us how much you hate them because you've definitely earned it this week. They've definitely got the crown this week. I should talk to Henry about making that a segment. Who's our, 
crappiest big tech, or not even big tech, who's our crappiest privacy invader of the week? We'd have a lot of repeat winners. Okay, and now we're going to talk about the one good thing Microsoft did this week, because, you know, again, I like to be fair, credit where credit's due. Windows 11 builds ships with more Rust-based kernel features. Quoting the article, Microsoft announced that the latest Windows 11 build shipping to insiders in the Canary Channel comes with additional Windows kernel components rewritten in the memory safety-focused Rust programming language. Rust is seen as a safer alternative to C and C++ due to its memory safety improvements, which help prevent common issues such as null pointer deferences, buffer overflows, and dangling pointers that can lead to system crashes and security breaches. It It also enforces rigorous rules for concurrent programming, mitigating data race conditions where multiple threads concurrently access and modify shared data, thus allowing developers to write concurrent code that is secure and free from data. Databases. This is critical for kernel processes. Memory bugs could allow attackers to execute cur- commands at the highest privilege levels in Windows. Therefore, securing them with a memory-safe programming language would be a priority for Microsoft. And on the topic of good news in Microsoft, we're going to end on one more good piece. It says GitHub goes passwordless, announces passkeys beta preview. Title says it all. If you want to activate it on your account, click on your profile photo in the top right corner of any GitHub page. From there, open the feature preview menu and click the enable passkeys option. In the meantime, we will move into research. We've only got two stories this week. The first one is just kind of more of an interesting thing. It says ransomware payments on record-breaking trajectory for 2023. According to a report by blockchain analysis firm Chainalysis, ransomware is the only cryptocurrency crime category seeing a rise this year, with all others, including hacks, scams, malware, abuse material sales, fraud shops, and darknet market revenue recording a steep decline. In fact, ransomware attackers are on pace for their second biggest year ever, having extorted at least $449.1 million through June. Obviously, you guys can't see the graph here, but if you go to the website, you can. As shown in the graph below by Chainalysis, the cumulative yearly ransomware revenue for 2023 has reached 90% of the total 2022 figure in just the first half of the year. So in other words, in the first half of 2023, ransomware has made 90% of what it did in all of 2022. If the revenue growth pace is maintained at that level, ransomware actors will make just short of $900 million from victims in 2023, just below 2021's record figure of $940 million. In our second story, the headline says USB drive malware attacks spiking again in first half of 2023. A new report by Mandian outlines how two USB delivered malware campaigns have been observed this year. One named Sogu attributed to a Chinese espionage threat group and another named Snowy Drive attributed to UNC4698, which targets oil and gas firms in Asia. Sogu is currently the most aggressive USB-assisted cyber espionage campaign, targeting many industries worldwide and attempting to steal data from infected computers. The victims of Sogu are located in the US, France, UK, Italy, Poland, Austria, Australia, Switzerland, China, Japan, Ukraine, Singapore, Indonesia, and the Philippines. Most victims belong to the pharmaceutical, IT, energy, communications, health, and logistics sectors, but there are victims across the board. Meanwhile, Snowy Drive is a campaign that infects computers with a backdoor allowing the attackers to execute arbitrary payloads through the Windows command prompt, modify the registry, and perform file and directory actions. The components undertake specific roles such as establishing persistence on the breach system, evading detection, dropping a backdoor, and ensuring malware propagation through the newly connected USB drives. The backdoor supports many commands that allow file operations, data exfiltration, reverse shell, command execution, and reconnaissance. While USB attacks require physical access to the target computers to achieve infection, they have unique advantages that keep them both relevant and trending in 2023. The advantages include bypassing security mechanisms, stealth, initial access to corporate networks, and the ability to infect air gap systems isolated from unsecured networks for security reasons. Mandiant's investigation point to print shops and hotels as infection hotspots for USB malware. So for those of you who travel a lot or print a lot, be on your guard. Still, considering the random opportunistic spread of these backdoors, any system with a USB could be a target, a USB port. Okay, that's it. We'll move into politics, and this is actually a short section for once. 
We'll start off in America. Democrats call on Department of Justice to investigate tax sites for sharing financial information with Meta. So on Tuesday, Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and others ask the Justice Department, Federal Trade Commission, Treasury Department, and IRS to investigate whether TaxLayer, H&R Block, and Tax Act violated tax taxpayer privacy laws by sharing sensitive user information with two tech firms, Meta and Google. Uh, Senators also released their own report Wednesday detailing the accusations, which were first raised by the markup last November. The report alleges that for years, tax preparation companies infused their products with Meta and Google tracking pixels that revealed identifying information, like a user's full name, address, and date of birth. The senators also suggest that some of the information provided, like forms a user accessed, could be used to show whether taxpayers were eligible for certain deductions or exemptions. The senators claim that the companies did not receive user consent to share this information, which could violate laws banning tax preparers from sharing tax return information with third parties, especially since much of this data could be used for advertising purposes. TaxLayer, H&R Block, and TaxAct all confirmed that they shared extensive taxpayer data through Meadows Pixel in the Senator's report. After the markup published its November findings, each of the companies said they had removed or disabled it from their websites. Okay, let's go to Canada, where the Supreme Court won't examine Canadian banks sharing account info with the United States. I'm actually going to quote the entire article here because it's very short and it's full of information. There's not really a lot of fluff here. The Supreme Court of Canada will not hear a challenge of legislation that allows account information held by Canadian financial institutions to be shared with U.S. authorities. The case began when two U.S.-born women who now live in Canada contested the Canadian provisions implementing a 2014 agreement between the two countries that made the information sharing possible. The two unsuccessfully argued in lower courts that the provisions breached the section of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms preventing unreasonable seizure. The U.S. Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act requires banks and other institutions in countries outside the United States to report information about accounts held by U.S. individuals, including Canadians with dual citizenship. The Canadian government told the Federal Court of Appeal that failure to comply with the U.S. measures would have serious effects on Canada's financial sector, its customers, and the broader economy. The information from Canada being shared with the U.S. Internal Revenue Service includes the names and addresses of account holders, account numbers, account balances, and details such as interest, dividends, and other income. And our last political story comes from Europe. Europe adopts U.S. data adequacy decision. This is a very long article, and well, let me start with this. The much anticipated decision means there's an immediate resolution to the legal uncertainty around exports of EU users' personal data by US companies, a problem that's affected thousands of businesses in recent years, big and small, including the likes of Meta and Google, to name a couple of the most high profile examples. Political agreement on the EU US data privacy framework was announced back in March 2022, but it's taken over a year to get all the I's dotted and T's crossed, while the prior mechanism for simplifying exports of data over the pond was invalidated by EU judges almost three years ago. Nonetheless, legal challenges to the DPF are on the way. Both predecessor arrangements, Safe Harbor and Privacy Shield, were struck down by the block's top court after judges found exported personal data was not protected to the required legal standard given risks posed by sweeping U.S. surveillance powers. And privacy campaigners are warning the new framework could be in front of the criminal justice of the European Union within months. One key point for critics is that since Privacy Shield's demise, we still have not seen a reform of U.S. surveillance powers, with no moves by lawmakers to accept the need to reform the controversial FISA 702 provision and pass protections for foreigners' information. This means, at root, the DPF is still papering over the same fundamental legal conflict between EU privacy rights and U.S. surveillance powers, and it could inexorably face the same assessment of inadequacy once EU judges get to scrutinize the detail. Okay, with that, let's move into FOSS. First up, our fastest, most beautiful release ever, Thunderbird 115 Supernova is here. That's the headline. Quoting the article, I am incredibly excited to announce the initial launch of Thunderbird 115 Supernova for Linux, macOS, and Windows. Supernova represents a modernized overhaul of the software, both visually and technically, while retaining the familiarity and flexibility you expect from Thunderbird. They have about a paragraph explaining each of these, but I just went through and like, 
just to kind of give you guys an idea of what's changed. They have a new logo. They have a dynamic unified toolbar and intuitive app menu, improved calendar design, quote, elegant density control, new and sortable folder modes, quote, eye-catching tag views, improved address book, better accessibility, and they promise there is more to come. I guess I would say if you haven't used Thunderbird in a while, because, and understandably so, if you're just like, oh, it looks really outdated, it looks old, it looks kind of crappy to be honest, I would say now is definitely a good time to give it a chance. And our last FOSS story says Linux hit over 3% desktop user share according to StatCounter. Quoting the article, this does not include Chrome OS, even though it's based on Linux as they track that separately. So this is just plain desktop Linux. And the article says, keep a big pinch of salt ready for any such survey. StatCounter gathers this data from around 1.5 million sites globally. So this may not be fully accurate. Okay, and last we'll go into our misfits. And this is a really quick one. It says, your printing service might be reading your documents. Here's what to know. I think this came from Washington Post. Sure did. And uh, this author says, if you're printing something on actual paper, there's a good chance it's important, like a tax form or a job contract. But popular printing products and services won't promise not to read it. In fact, they won't even promise not to share it with outside marketing firms. Very well put. And then the article, uh, it's not really comprehensive. It's kind of an intro level article. But they go on to compare HP, Canon, FedEx, UPS, Staples, Print With Me, and the New York Public Library's privacy policies regarding printing. I just thought this was interesting to share because this is a subject that a lot of us don't always think about or talk about. And that's it for this week. So a reminder, the Q&A will drop later this week for those of you who are interested in that. I think Henry should be back by then. If not, he'll definitely be back next week. So tune in to find out. We will continue to keep you updated on the Move It data breach since that doesn't seem to be going away. If we hear anything about that Department of Justice investigation on the tax stuff and the Metapixel, we'll definitely keep you updated. Of course, Proton Drive, Thunderbird, Linux growth. I'm sure we're going to hear more about all of that. New features, new milestones, you know, Windows 11 hopefully getting more secure and safer. The upcoming Mac OS release, I'm sure we're going to hear more about that in the future as that gets closer and some of the privacy improvements, security improvements. So as always, Stay subscribed. We're trying our best to keep you updated on all of our stories and everything we hear about. Remember that you can support us if you want. You can help keep us going. We have Patreon where if you give $5 a month or more, you can ask us a question in the Q&A, which again, coming out in a few days, we will release that a little later. Got a lot of questions this week. If you give $10 a month or more, you get an ad-free version of the show, which also includes more commentary, more banter. Usually when Henry's here, there's more banter, just some more analysis, stuff like that. If you don't care about any of that stuff, but you want to support us in a recurring fashion, we have LibrePay. It's a little bit more privacy respecting. And of course, for maximum privacy, we have Monero. It's not recurring, but you know you have to do it manually if you want to keep supporting on a regular basis. But if you just want to do a one-off or you are trying to protect your privacy as much as possible, Monero is definitely the way to go. And for those of you who are you know not financially able to give, we really appreciate you listening, commenting, sharing, liking, subscribing, leaving a rating. Every little bit helps. Thank you guys. Thank you for listening to the Surveillance Report. The final thing we want to ask of you, as always, I just mentioned, make sure you share the podcast around. Make sure you're subscribed. Give us a rating if you're on a platform where that's an option. We're trying to reach as many people as possible with a message of privacy. Uh, You can help us do that. Every little bit helps. So thank you. And we'll see you next week, hopefully with both of us.